Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Galatians, chapter 3. Let's hear now the Word of God. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does He do it by the works of the law? or by the hearing of faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith." Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Spirit has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking God's help this morning, let's turn back to Galatians chapter 3, focusing our attention upon verses 26 and 27. Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. Seeking God's help, we look at verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he builds on this, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. First, we consider verse 26. Now, it's important because the the first word in our verse indicates to us the significance of the context. The word for. As often said, when, when you see the word therefore, you need to know why it's what it's there for, if you see the word for, uh, in the same way. What's it there for? The word for. What's the significance here? He's building upon an argument that he's been making throughout this epistle. Now, Paul is writing to a collection of churches throughout the regions of Galatia. This is not one city with one church. Galatia is an entire region. We don't have time to get into the arguments for or against that, but most scholars would agree that this is written to a vast number of churches within various uh, cities within the overall region of Galatia. And we could go to some of the chapters in the book of Acts to demonstrate the various churches that are planted here. So these are churches that Paul planted through his missionary efforts in Asia Minor and, and throughout the Roman world. Here they are in Galatia, and there's a problem. There are false teachers that have come from Jerusalem, people that profess the name of Jesus as Messiah, but have basically just baptized in the Pharisaical theology of works righteousness. And they're seeking to promote this works righteousness, this false gospel, as the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they're Christian Pharisees or Judaizers. And one of the things that they do in order to relieve the tension between the Jewish community that's currently seeking to persecute Christians in these regions, one of the ways they seek to relieve the tension is they try to make peace with the Jewish community by saying, well, all of the Gentile converts in the Christian church need to be circumcised. And so we're going to have all of these Gentiles becoming circumcised, and that's sort of a notch on the belt that they can show to the Jews, hey, we're kind of working 
in tandem here. These people in the Christian church are being circumcised and they're buying into the basic theology that you're being taught in the synagogue. Just like so-called reformed teachers today who try to build a bridge back to Rome and the works righteousness of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, That's the strategy here. Let's ease the tension Let's come together, and the way they do that is to see these Gentiles circumcised. And yet, as Paul is addressing this false teaching, um, you can see that in chapter 2, he recounts an instance where Peter was in Antioch, and there was basically a fellowship meal, and the Jews would not eat with the Gentiles, because they're still trying to live under the Mosaic law, the food laws of the Old Testament. And they won't eat with the Gentiles. And Peter feels pressure from the Jewish Christians, these Pharisaical Judaizers. He he feels pressure. And so he holds back from eating with the Gentiles. And so you can see it's not merely an issue of you need to be circumcised and do good works to be saved, to be justified vertically in your relationship with God. That's what they're teaching, by the way. Acts 15, verse 1, verse 5, and verse 7. They're teaching that you have to be circumcised to be saved vertically, justified, righteous in God's sight. But also, it's affecting the horizontal relationships which are based upon that vertical salvation. It's affecting the life of the body of Christ because you have these Jews and Gentiles within the professing churches in the Galatian region not able to join together. And in order for there to be harmony, the Judaizers are saying, well, everybody has to buy into these Old Testament laws, these Old Testament food laws and ceremonies, circumcision and so on. You need to do that if you're going to be a credibly professing Christian because if not, you're rejecting God's law and you, you can't be considered a justified person so you got to do it in order to be saved but you also have to do it in order to have communion with the church which is made up uh, largely of those people who are saved so Paul is addressing this false teaching through this letter eventually this controversy goes to the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 and they rule on it and they they refute this false gospel of works and of circumcision and ceremonies now If you look at chapter 3, you can see Paul having begun in chapter 2 to refute the idea of justification by works, justification by moral works, ceremonial works, any type of work. Uh, You're not going to be right with God on the basis of what you do. That's what he's addressing here at the end of chapter 2. And uh, he says... Verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The Greek grammar there actually doubles that adversative. Literally, it should be translated, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, no, not but by faith in Jesus Christ. So he's saying, Jews and Gentiles alike are sinners, and the only righteousness they have that meets the standard of God's perfect law is the righteousness they receive from Jesus Christ by faith. It's not something that they do. It's not even on the basis of the fact that they believe. Faith is just looking at the promise of God and receiving Jesus Christ 
and all of his benefits. And in this case, the benefit in question is his perfect obedience. He fulfilled God's law perfectly. He obeyed every commandment of God. He suffered and died in in place of those who didn't obey the law of God. And he paid the penalty for the sin of his people. And so that righteousness, that righteousness which satisfied the penalty of the law, that righteousness which fulfilled the precept of the law, is given to the believer who receives it by faith. And Paul says it's not but by faith. It's not by any other way than faith. It's not just justification, being declared righteous by faith, but it's justification by faith alone. That's what it means when you say not accept by faith. It means by faith alone. Now he's building that argument again at the end of chapter 2. The last verse in the chapter, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. It's very important here. When we speak of the grace of God... If we understand the grace of God in any other way, then God graciously saved us by sending His Son who accomplished redemption. If we understand grace by any other way, then Jesus did it all. Jesus purchased it all. Jesus purchased my righteousness. Jesus purchased my adoption as a child of God. Jesus purchased the Holy Spirit who sanctifies me. Jesus purchased my perseverance. Jesus purchased my heaven, my glorification. Jesus purchased it all at the cross. I'm simply receiving it by believing in Him and receiving it by promise from God. If, if the grace of God means anything other than that to you, then what you're doing is nullifying the death of Christ. Because there are many people who say, of course we believe in grace. I mean, Jesus tells a parable of a Pharisee who believed in grace, who stood at the temple and said, God, I thank You. It's all grace. From beginning to end, I thank You that I'm not like all these other rascals around me. I thank You that I'm better than them. I thank You that by Your grace, I have a righteousness in my good works, in my abstaining from certain moral evils, in my performance of certain ceremonial statutes. Thank You, God, for graciously making me good enough to go to heaven. That is heresy. That will land you in hell. That is not the grace of God. And these Pharisaical Judaizers like the Reformed charlatans in some denominations today who who say, well, no, uh, you're, you're justified partly by your covenant faithfulness, by your good works. In one way or another, they, like Roman Catholicism, in a circuitous, shifty, sneaky, uh, serpentine manner, they turn the grace of God into works. Paul says, you're not going to get away with that. And anybody who teaches that, chapter 1, is accursed and anathema. But now he moves into chapter 3 and he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? How is it that you heard the true gospel of salvation by God's grace through faith, through the perfect righteousness and redemption of Jesus Christ, imputed to you, received by faith alone? How is it that you heard that message? He says, in my preaching, I painted the cross, I painted 
all of Christ's work on your behalf. I set it before you. I clearly portrayed Christ among you as crucified. And you believed and the Holy Spirit came into your midst and great wondrous works of sanctification, even miraculous mighty works took place and people were being converted and there was what he describes here almost like a a revival and all of these many things are happening and now I leave to go somewhere else and within a very short time you were running well but who hindered you? Now you're falling into false teaching. Now you're Gentiles among you are getting circumcised so as to somehow comply with this false gospel of works. You're getting circumcised as new covenant Gentile believers because they're telling you you can't be saved if you don't do this work. Well, Paul says it's foolish. Paul says they've put a spell on you. You've been bewitched. You've been deceived. How could this possibly happen? And he confronts them with a number of things. He confronts them, as I said, with their own experience. I mean, he proves these things from Scripture, but notice, when Paul is dealing with false teaching, he's able to actually refute it by way of experience. He's able to look at the spiritual fruit of biblical doctrine in the life of the church and say, not only is what they're teaching false, and not only is what I'm teaching true, but you've actually tasted and seen that these things are true. You've seen the work of the Spirit. You've seen these things. And if you look at the false teaching, what has that ever done for you? What has that ever done? What has it ever done for the church throughout history, this false gospel of works? Brought on the dark ages. That's, that's about all that it's ever done. But people want to go back to it for some reason. And he's saying to them, You don't need to go back to it. Just remember the blessing that the true gospel has been in your life. He says, remember Abraham. Supposedly, you're supposed to get circumcised so you can jump on board with Abraham. But the fact is that Abraham was not saved by his circumcision. Abraham was not declared to be righteous in the sight of God on the basis of his circumcision. The fact of the matter is that Abraham himself believed and it was accredited to him unto righteousness. He believed the gospel promise that was preached to him, which in a sort of indirect way included the coming of Christ who satisfies and fulfills the law on our behalf. And that righteousness of Christ was imputed, accounted, credited to Abraham's account to be righteous in the sight of God. Not Abraham's faith. It's not saying that Abraham's faith was his righteousness. People say, yes, but God commands you to believe. And therefore, faith is obedience. Yeah, faith is obedience. Problem is, it's not perfect obedience unless you have perfect faith. And raise your hand if you have perfect faith. Right? So, even if faith is an act of obedience in some kind of indirect way, fair enough, but it's not perfect obedience. We're told in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham's faith grew strong, which means it started out weaker. It was imperfect. So if your faith is your obedience and your righteousness, it better be perfect faith. It better be... You've never had a doubt in your life. You've never had any ounce of unbelief. And at the end of the day, perfect faith is no more attainable in this life than perfect righteousness. But again, he's saying Abraham was justified by faith. He received the righteousness of God 
by faith. In fact, God said, uh, so we're in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So the people that are saying you've got to be justified by your ceremonial, moral, good works, circumcision, they're actually showing that they're not true children of Abraham, but the true child of Abraham believes the promise and, and trusts in God's faithfulness and receives the gracious imputation or credit of righteousness. That's the true child of Abraham. So in a way... The way to be a true child of Abraham is to refuse this circumcision. We know, of course, in the New Testament that uh, circumcision and the ceremonial law has been done away with. And the, the, the real way to be a child of Abraham is to believe the gospel and to reject this gospel of ceremonial good works. It says the Scriptures, verse 8, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Again, you see the phrase, of faith. To be a true Christian, to be right with God, you have to be of faith. That has to be what you're of, what you're all about, what you're resting in, the way that you approach your relationship to God, it has to be on the basis of faith. Nothing that you've done, but simply the eyes of faith looking to the promises of God. The, the empty hand of faith not offering something to God, but simply receiving the righteousness of Christ. Receiving the gracious benefits of salvation which He purchased. You have to be of faith in order to be blessed. Because if you're of anything else, if you're of works, you're under the curse. Verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. You're already under the curse. You came into the world under the curse because Adam sinned and because you came into the world as a sinner and you're building up, you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath with your imperfect attempt to obey. At best, right? And, and at worst, just utter rebellion against God and His law. So we're all sinners from birth, from conception. Even in our father Adam from the beginning of the world, we're all sinners. And if we seek to be justified and right with God on the basis of our sinful, sin-stained, polluted works, our filthy rags, our dung, all these words used in the Bible to describe uh, even our best works of righteousness, if we try to do that, if we're of the works of the law, whether it's circumcision, whether it's the moral law, then we remain under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You have people out there, they say, oh, in the Old Testament it was all about salvation by works. And then Jesus showed up and now you can be saved by grace. Well, uh, Paul says, check out actually what the Old Testament says. The Old Testament says, no, you're never going to be saved by works because you're cursed if you've sinned even once. Cursed is everyone. So that's universal, no exceptions. Cursed is everyone who doesn't do this. So what's the standard by which you can avoid that curse of God's wrath? 
Okay, you have to continue. So it's got to be perpetual. It's got to be lifelong, unflinching, unchanging performance from beginning to end. Okay? To continue in all things which are written in the book of the law. So you have to first read the law, study the law, know the law perfectly, and then you would have to continue in those things to do them. So you can't just profess them. You can't just say, well, this is really good. You know, oftentimes we say great things. We profess great things. Oh, here's what, here's what people should be doing to obey the law of God. Here's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Here are all these wonderful biblical principles. And then when we go to actually live our lives, far from it, we, we sin. We sin against the very things that we believe the Bible has commanded us to do or not to do. But this is saying you can't ever do that. You have to know and believe and understand everything that's written in God's Word, and you have to do it. You have to continue to do it. You have to perpetually do it without ever sinning even once. That's the doctrine that Moses presented to the children of Israel concerning their justification in the sight of God. You want to be justified by works? Okay, like Jesus said to the rich young ruler, go for it. Keep the commandments. And come back and let me know how you're doing. Obviously, we all fall short. So that's the Old Testament doctrine. If you think you're saved by works, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's not the doctrine of the Old Testament. Verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, but this is better translated that the righteous by faith shall live. The person who's righteous by believing God's promise and receiving the gracious imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness credited to their account, that person who's righteous by faith shall have eternal life. So you won't be cursed and damned. You'll be blessed and saved and have everlasting life. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Leviticus 18.5. So, the law, if you're trying to use it to be right with God, it's not of faith. It's, it's the exact opposite of faith. If you try to keep the law to be right with God, you're going to be judged by a strict standard of absolute perfection and you're going to fall short. But if you're justified by faith, Jesus fulfilled that perfect standard through His life, death, and resurrection. And now, for you... The law of God is a guide. It's a rule of life in your sanctification. You're no longer under the obligation to fulfill it, to have eternal life. You have eternal life, and now you're obeying it out of gratitude. You're obeying the authoritative law of God imperfectly, but God's graciously working with you because Christ has satisfied the, the demands of His justice against you. And so, the law is not of faith. Being of the law and being of faith are two radically different things. Christ, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's paid our debt. He's redeemed us from the guilt and slavery of sin, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. As the Old Testament says, symbolically, if somebody's hung on a tree... The curse of God is upon them. Well, Jesus, the second Adam, atoning for the sin by which humanity 
ate from the forbidden tree, Jesus now to redeem His people, He's nailed to the tree and He is cursed. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? He endures the curse that believers deserve on their behalf. So that, verse 14, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So whatever the Spirit of God is doing in your life, it's not in any way connected with your right standing with God. The Spirit of sanctification that God sends into your life that enables you to do good works and obey God's commandments here and there and grow and gradually become more like Christ, the Spirit of God in your life and the sanctified works that you do do not factor one iota into your justification. And it's clear here, in fact, that Christ purchased that spirit of sanctification for you at the cross. And it's because you've been justified through faith in His righteousness that now the door flings wide open for sanctification and good works as a fruit of the righteousness that God has given you. So don't believe the lie of Roman Catholicism and various other false teachers even in the certain Reformed denominations who want to say that your sanctified good works factor into your justification. That doesn't make any sense. It's putting the cart before the horse. Because it's actually your justification through Christ's finished work that then opens the door for you to have the Spirit of God as a gift which was purchased for you by Christ. Well, he continues, he talks about covenant theology, about the difference between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Moses. Why did God give the law? Well, in terms of this idea of being right with God, why did God give the law? He gave the law to point out sin. He gave the law, first and foremost, in terms of our relationship to God, He gave it to us to show us and to show the many unconverted Israelites that they're sinners under the wrath of God and they need salvation. So he, he gave the law to point them to Christ. Now obviously once they come to Christ, the law is a law of liberty and of, of sanctification. But the point here is in terms of justification, it points out our sin. It was added because of transgressions, he says in verse 19 so that people would look to Christ. Christ who is, in a way, the substance of our faith. When, it, when he says in the verses leading up to verse 25 um, that now faith has come, he's not saying that the gospel of faith and justification only came on the scene with the New Testament. What he's saying here is that Christ is the substance of our faith. When faith came when the thing that we're believing in the one who is the substance of our faith the one that we're trusting in the object of our faith verse 25 but after faith has come we're no longer under a tutor now that Christ has fulfilled the law and brought in everlasting righteousness and we're not just looking ahead for a future messiah now that faith has come the object the substance of faith now we don't need the old testament ceremonies and, and so, this is his argument. By the way, I think it's significant when we say we're justified by faith. According to the way Paul speaks in verse 25, that's just another way of saying we're justified by Christ. 
And I'm not denying that faith is the means of receiving Christ and His righteousness. But in verse 25, he speaks of Christ as faith. When he says faith has come, he's speaking of Christ coming. And now that Christ has come, now that faith has come, if that's equivalent, then to say you're justified by faith and to say Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, what's the basis of that? It's Christ. It's Christ. Now, verse 26. Here he brings it all together and he says, look, you, who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to uh, credibly professing believers in the Galatian churches. He's saying, you, you who in the beginning of verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, uh, you who heard my preaching, you who believed, you, you came to faith through the hearing of faith, you received the Holy Spirit. He's speaking here to the communicant members of the church. He's speaking here to the professing members of the church. We're not saying children aren't members of the New Testament church, but we're saying in this particular passage, he's speaking to the people that he's just described and to whom he is speaking throughout this epistle, primarily people who heard and professed faith in the gospel and who are now in danger of falling away from grace by believing this false gospel. Uh, We know... Paul elsewhere addresses children, Ephesians 6. He says they're holy, 1 Corinthians 7. And at the end of chapter 3, verse verse 29, he says to these believers, if you're Christ, if you're a true believer united to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And we know God's covenant with Abraham is unto Abraham and his offspring. So we're not denying here, when we say he's speaking to professing believers, we're not denying that the children of those professing believers, according to God's covenant with Abraham, are part of the church and that they're to receive the sign of the covenant. We're not denying that. Um, We're also not saying that Paul assumes that every single person to whom he's speaking is absolutely necessarily born again. He doesn't make that assumption And we could go throughout this entire book. He's actually confronting them on every page, every paragraph, saying, I have doubts about you. I'm concerned about you. Are you really saved? Did you believe in vain? Have you fallen from grace? And so on. But here he speaks charitably to those who have credibly professed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says to them, you are all sons, that is children of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. Through faith. You've professed your faith. You've claimed to exercise saving faith. You are a believer in Christ. Therefore, all of you who fit that description, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The word all means both. Uh, You can look that up in Romans 3 verse 9, Romans 11 verse 32. Paul typically uses the word all to speak of both Jews and and Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles who believe are sons of God. Now this is speaking of personal saving adoption. That when you believe in Christ, you're united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, and in the eternal Son of God, you become an adopted son or daughter of the living God through union with Christ. Chapter 4, verse 4, God we're told in the fullness of time, sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive 
the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. He goes on to say, you are an heir of God through Christ. So, he's saying by faith, you're, you're united to Christ. And you are a son or a daughter in the Son of the living God. Through union with Christ by faith. You can see that same doctrine in Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. Uh, in Romans 8, 16, and 17. He's saying everyone who believes is united to Christ as a child of God. And it's through faith in Christ Jesus. As we've said, it's a faith, not of works. It's not circumcision. It's not obeying the Ten Commandments like the rich young ruler who went away sorrowful and if he didn't repent and believe is continuing in that sorrow for all eternity. It's by faith. Saving union with Christ by faith. Jesus Christ is the ark. The flood of God's wrath is coming. You can hear the pitter-patter of the rain. Get in the ark. Get into, get into Christ by faith. That's how you come into Christ. That's how you partake of all of His benefits. Believing in Christ. And it's not a ceremonial work or a moral performance. Uh, again, if, if, if you're fuzzy on that point, Romans 4, verse 4 and following, where he says, look, if you work, then you've earned it. But if it's by grace, it's to those who don't work, who make it a point, not that they're lazy, but they make it a point in connection with their righteousness before God. They don't move a muscle. They don't try in any sense to add to the righteousness of Christ. His perfect righteousness is like uh, the Mona Lisa. They're not up there trying to add things and make it better. They completely are satisfied and they don't move a muscle to work in any way to add to the work of Christ. They believe by faith that it is finished. Stop adding. Stop subtracting. Stop making the death of Christ to be in vain. It's by faith. By grace. And he says that God, who in that same passage, he says God justifies the ungodly. So if there was any doubt, if, if there was any thought that in order to be justified in the sight of God, you have to meet some kind of moral or ceremonial performance criteria, sorry, that... It's the opposite. God justifies the ungodly, the undeserving, the hell-deserving. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, the quickest path to hell is to try to touch up the Mona Lisa, to try to add to the work of Christ. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Um, we could spend a lot of time talking about baptism this morning. Um, but I'm happy we've been talking about the gospel. But let's, let's, let's pivot here. Let's pivot to what he says about baptism. Uh, he uses the word for, meaning he's building on verse 26. Verse 27 is built upon the logic and the statement of verse 26. So before he had said, you're united to Christ and justified and adopted and receive all the benefits of Christ through faith. Now he builds on that. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, and this is talking about water baptism, let's be clear. We're not going to spiritualize the text. This is not talking about spirit baptism. It's talking about water baptism. It's very important because his argument is 
New Testament church members don't need the Old Testament sign of the covenant. Stop living in the past. We now have baptism. We now have baptism as a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith. We now have baptism to represent the cleansing power and the work of Christ. We now have baptism to represent the new birth, regeneration, all these things. We now have baptism as an outward visible token of God's covenant, a sign and a means of grace. But we have it. We don't need circumcision. That's the point here. So he's dealing with water baptism because he's dealing with... um, Real circumcision. And so he's dealing with real physical baptism. And you can see the point here in verses 28 and 29 that with the New Testament sign of the covenant, uh, it's even better than the Old Testament sign because there's neither Jew nor Greek. So it's not primarily given to just Jews. It's, it's, you know, the the baptism that Jesus ordained in connection with the Great Commission is for all nations not just primarily for the Jews as was often the case in the Old Testament. There's neither slave nor free. Circumcision was given to the the bondservants of Abraham and of the children of Israel. Now, that's not the case. Paul addresses believing slaves in their own right. Their social status is not brought into the life of the church. And uh, so we don't, you know, in a society maybe that had uh, indentured servitude, we wouldn't baptize the servants. There is neither male nor female. Obviously, women didn't receive circumcision, but now they receive baptism. So he's making the point, baptism replaces circumcision. Both of them point to the work of the Spirit to cut off our flesh, to wash us, and to make us true born-again Christians. That's what these things point to. Um, So it is water baptism, and understand baptism is passive. You don't baptize yourself just like you don't regenerate yourself. You don't born again yourself. You weren't active in your conception and birth. Uh, well, maybe in your birth, I guess, in some ways, but you know, Jacob grabbing the heel. But you were not active in your conception. You were passive. You came to life through your conception, physically speaking. And the fact is, in regeneration, you're passive. You're dead. You're a dead sinner and the Spirit raises you up to life, and you're entirely passive. But the moment you're raised to life, you're believing and repenting, and and you're being converted. But regeneration is passive, so is baptism. And notice he says, baptized into Christ. Now, we know that that does not mean that baptism savingly unites a person to Christ, because he's already said that of faith. Faith is the inward spiritual grace that unites us to Christ, Baptism is the outward spiritual ordinance that signifies our union with Christ and publicly associates us with the body of Christ and with the people of Christ. So we're baptized into Christ, um, but notice in chapter 3, verse 2, they weren't saved through baptism, they were saved through the hearing of faith. But yet we're baptized into one body. Genesis 17, circumcision is called the covenant. Psalm 51, 7, David wants to be cleansed of his sin. He says, cleanse me with the hyssop branch. Jesus says the cup is the new covenant. Paul is told to rise up and be baptized for the washing away of his sins. The fact is the Bible links the symbol, the outward sign with the spiritual grace again and again. It doesn't mean David's actually saved by a hyssop branch. That's nonsense. 
But there is this objective, visible union or association with Christ and with the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 deals with that. Now, when he says, all of you that were baptized into Christ in that way have put on Christ, he is not saying that every baptized person has put on Christ in the way that's spoken of here. Certainly, every baptized person has Christ put upon them. His name is put upon them. Uh, Every baptized person is baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and passively they have the name put on them, just like in the Old Testament, number six, the priests would put the name of God upon the people through the benediction. So it is true that every baptized person objectively, visibly has the name of God put upon them and they're set apart as special unto the Lord. However, this is not saying as many of you as were baptized into Christ have had Christ put on you. This is saying as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And this is where it's important to understand the meaning of the word you. He has just described the you, the people he's talking about in the previous verse. People who through faith in Christ are children of God. So he then says, verse 27, for as many of you believers united to Christ, children of God, as many of you that I'm speaking to in this context who are believers, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You didn't just have Him put on you passively, but by faith you put Him on. And in the New Testament, putting on Christ is something that we do. It's not associated directly with uh, baptism. That's the passive side of it. Baptism speaks to our passive uh, regeneration. But putting on Christ is the active, believing response to the promise of God signified in baptism. Putting on Christ. You can see it throughout the New Testament, but Romans chapter 13 is very clear. Verse 11, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So people have already believed and he's stirring them to action. Wake up and get active here. Stir up, fan into flame the faith uh, in your life. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Verse 12, he says, put on the armor of light. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who have been baptized, those of you who have been baptized and who today, whether for the first time or for the bazillionth time, believe in Christ in a saving way, and you believe in His promises, and you receive His righteousness by faith, and you want to walk in His ways out of gratitude, in holiness, now is the time. Now is the time to be stirred up. Now is the time to put on the armor of light and fight against the darkness. Now is the time to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Now is the time. It's not like it's a one-time thing at your baptism. The point Paul is making is that true believers respond to their baptism by putting on Christ. And these Galatians did that and they put on Christ and now they're going to throw Him out. Now they're going to toss Him aside in favor of a gospel of works. 
And he says, no, you who are believers who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, my friends, this putting on Christ, this believing response, this receiving of gracious increase of faith and grace through contemplating our baptism by faith, that is not linked to the moment of baptism. We saw 1 Peter 3.21, baptism is now saving us. It's an ongoing reminder for those who receive that promise by faith that increases their faith. So when we baptize a baby, in accordance with the Abrahamic covenant, God is a God to our seed, we're not saying that that child is being saved by their baptism. We're not saying that that child is putting on Christ. We're saying the name of God is put upon them and we call upon you, covenant children, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. To to put off the works of the flesh. To put on the armor of light. To be strengthened in the might of the Lord and put on the whole armor of God to fight as a believer in Christ against sin and against the devil and against the world. Put Him on. It's time. It's high time. Some of you covenant children, have you professed faith? Have you embraced these promises for yourself? What was placed upon you in your baptism? Have you taken it seriously? Have you owned it for yourself in the covenant of God's grace? Have you done that? Now is high time for you to believe and to embrace it. When when we baptize an infant, it's not just for that infant. It's so that everybody who's here who's been baptized can afresh and perhaps for the first time put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To put on Christ, to respond in faith to your baptism is an ongoing declaration of war against sin. It's an ongoing uh, enlistment of the Christian in the army of the Lord of hosts. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on righteousness and holiness. Put on love and mercy and tenderheartedness. Colossians 3, 5 and following. Put these things on and make no provision for the flesh. This is not guaranteed to anyone apart from faith in Christ. Put Him on. Put Him on today. It's your duty, covenant children, to put Him on. It's not guaranteed that you will. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. But it's your duty. And it's your eternal blessedness on the line. Put Him on. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what amazing grace You have showered upon us to give Your Son that all who believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We pray that You would stir up faith in Christ, that You would be uniting sinners to Christ even now as we speak, as we pray, glorify Yourself by saving sinners, uniting them to Christ, making them children of God, giving them active faith to put on Christ every single day and to trample over their lusts. Crush Satan under our feet. Crush Satan under our children's feet. Crush Satan under the feet of our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to a thousand generations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.